This is the Made For More podcast. The health and wellness industry can be dogmatic and stagnant. We aim to explore what makes up the true essence of the human experience by discussing health, happiness, the human body, and what it truly means to be made for more. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds, along with co-host Lauren Sock and Mary Kathleen Toner. Welcome, everybody, to the Made for More podcast. I am Jake Reynolds. I'm Lauren Sock. And I'm Mary Kathleen. And with us today, we have Dr. Danielle Bailey, who is a physical therapist. She has been for 10 years. She specializes in pelvic floor therapy and is also a functional medicine practitioner. Um, she recently launched her new practice, 360 Health and Wellness Services, LLC, and provides physical therapy for individuals who experience pelvic floor dysfunction in the North Dallas area. Um, so welcome, Dr. Bailey. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. Um, let's start off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in pelvic health physical therapy? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, during my last semester of physical therapy school, I had a professor that was a women's health uh, specialist. And during our last semester, we had the opportunity to shadow an area of physical therapy that we didn't have the opportunity to do so throughout our entire curriculum. And I had a little bit of an interest for women's health. And so I said, let me shadow her and see what it's all about. And so I was able to just, you know, get a little bit more insight in terms of the different conditions that a lot of men and women deal with, with, with in regards to pelvic floor dysfunction. And so I was really interested in it, but I'll tell you, after, it wasn't until after five years of practicing, that's when I really began to actually start practicing pelvic floor therapy, which uh, was when a friend of mine invited me to cover for her maternity leave. And with that responsibility, I took a course and I was like, this is really cool. I'm enjoying this. And so I covered for the three months while she was gone and my passion for pelvic floor therapy grew even more. And so that's really what got me started. Uh, a little bit of interest in PT school and then just taking it full force uh, five years after practicing as a therapist. Um, so we know that, you know, you treat prenatal and postpartum patients, um, and many of whom are African-American. So would you mind telling us about the racial disparities that they or yourself have dealt with in the medical world? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I've had, I can recall, you know, one patient in particular that I was working with about a year ago. Uh, she came in to see me. She was about 32 weeks pregnant and she was experiencing a lot of pain during her pregnancy in her back and her hips, very common. And so my goal was just to help her throughout her, the rest of her pregnancy to reduce you know, her symptoms. But during our physical therapy sessions, I can remember how she would express to me that, you know, I really feel like my doctor's not paying attention to me. Mm. Um, in fact, she had a clotting condition during her pregnancy. And she told me that my doctor just told me to take Tylenol if I'm having pain. And so she really felt that she was just being brushed off when she would express to him, this is how I'm feeling. And 
So that was of concern to me because, yeah. you know, I, I chose this profession, uh, the physical therapy profession, because I love spending time with people. Mm-hmm. I don't like the quick in and out. I really yeah. want to be able to spend that time with my patients. And so I, I gave a call to her doctor and I just shared with him what we were doing in physical therapy. And I voiced to him that she's really complaining about this clotting issue she has and she just feels abnormal during mm-hmm. her pregnancy. And so during our phone conversation, you could tell he sounded a little irritated. <laughs> but mm-hmm. needless to say, I think he actually listened to me a little bit. A few sessions later, um, a couple weeks later, I saw the patient and she was like, I thank you so much for calling my doctor for me because he referred me to a specialist um, to kind of take over my care for the rest of my pregnancy. And so at that point, she really felt that she was heard and she felt that she had an advocate. And I think that's really a big problem is that a lot of women who may not really know how to advocate for themselves Um, that's what kind of puts them in positions and where they're more at risk during the pregnancies. And, Mm -hmm. um, for me to be able to call her doctor, tell her what's going on and for him to actually take the initiative to refer her to someone else, I think just spoke a lot of volume to her, um, just to really help mitigate those feelings of I'm not being heard. No one cares. She finally felt that she was being heard. So those are kind of a little bit of, uh, these are situations that I yeah. commonly see in my practice is that women, they need advocates for yeah. them. And Absolutely. So, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it's so great that you can do that and that you take on that role because um, I was reading the other day about Serena Williams's birth story and mm-hmm. how she has a history of pulmonary embolisms. And so the day after her daughter was born in 17, in 2017, she wasn't feeling right. And so she said she left her hospital room and she went to go get a nurse um, because she didn't, her mother was in her hospital room with her and she didn't want to worry her mom. And the nurse um, just thought that maybe she was confused because she has was on pain medication or something, whatever. I've never had kids, so I'm not sure what medication she was on after she had her daughter. Um, yeah. And she requested herself that she needed a CT scan and a heparin drip. Am I saying that right? He- yeah. Heparin. Yeah. Um, and so she was advocating for herself. And the nurse still was went and got her doctor. And instead of a CT scan, they gave her an ultrasound. And mm-hmm. um, she was really frustrated. She was like, why are you pulling out a Doppler? I need a CT scan. And she remembers saying it again, that she needs a CT scan and a heparin drip. And um, they didn't see anything with ultrasound. So they eventually they performed the CT scan. And sure enough, she had blood clotting settling in her lungs. And so they ordered the heparin drip. So it really didn't even matter how rich, how famous, how talented, how educated, how much you advocate for your for yourself. Like in that situation, that was a life threatening situation. She could have lost her life. Um, So when you're working with your uh, African-American patients, do you feel like you have to sort of kind of on their pregnancy journey, treat them with that in mind? Do you kind of feel out questions about their other providers? Yeah. You know, this, this issue, it's such a a complex problem. It's a national problem. Um, You know, you look at the statistics in the CDC and they say that 
pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births for Black women older than 30 years of age are four to five times as high than white women. And even in states where the pregnancy-related mortality ratio is lower and among women with higher levels of education, there's still a significant difference that just persists. Mm -hmm. So it's not inherently that, oh, I just have a bad doctor. It's a systemic problem. And I bring this to say, you know, you know, you look at food deserts, right? Mm -hmm. It's an area that has limited access to affordable and nutritious food in contrast with the area that has, you know, the the Whole Foods and the Trader Joe's and the Sprouts, Mm -hmm. the good quality vegetable shops with, you know, all that you need for healthy nutrition. When you look at that, you ask yourself, who, where are these food deserts and who are the residents of these food deserts? It's mostly people with mm-hmm. low income. And so if you have low income, you're not going to drive an hour to go to a Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. You have access no. to the fast food restaurants, the yeah. liquor stores, the convenience stores. And what do they have? They have foods that are processed, a lot of processed foods. They're high in fat and sugar. And what does this lead to? It leads to obesity. And so, you know, how do we connect the dots between food deserts and the mortality rate among black women in, in pregnancy? If you have some type of risk factor like obesity and high blood pressure and diabetes, when you become pregnant, you're at a risk during your pregnancy already. And so I think with, with my patients, I really strive to educate them on making wise choices in terms of the foods they're eating safe exercise during pregnancy and, you know, asking them about, you know, what, what's going on in your family history that we need to be mindful of that predisposes you to some complicated risks during pregnancy. And I think with that in mind as a clinician, to be able to um, share that with your patient or share that with my patient and explain to them that we, we need to be mindful of all these factors I think that just sets them up for better success during their pregnancy versus ignoring them. So, and, and I'll share this too. You know, for me personally, my first pregnancy, I had an OBGYN. She was great, but she was very quick. The appointments were, I mean, five minutes tops. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, you know, baby? yeah, for my first baby. The first appointment was maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Um, but the follow-up appointments were quick. But it wasn't a terrible, terrible experience. I had a great birth, no issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My second um, pregnancy, I didn't have the best insurance. So the doctor, I mean, he just treated me like crap. It was, it was bad. It was really, really wow. bad. But my last pregnancy, I paid cash. I went to a midwife. And the care I got was just phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Wow. I had an hour appointment for my first visit. I had 30 minute follow-up appointments and they were so in tune to whatever symptoms I was feeling during my pregnancy, they were there. If I said I was having chest pain, they referred me to a cardiologist. You get that checked because they were aware that, you know, you are at a increased risk for mortality being a black female. Yeah. And so You know, I say that to say, I think it's important to be able to um, be an advocate for your patients as well as just educating them on things to be mindful of 
as it relates to pregnancy and as it relates to their increased risk of mortality. And um, that's really all I have to yeah. say regarding that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that touches on something that's that's really important, which is, you know, as clinicians, we have to be able to um, understand our patients and our patients also have to have a feeling of that they are being understood yeah. as well. Yeah. And I think some of that obviously starts with us being really good listeners. Yes. Um, and so I think that all of us, if we're, if we're desiring quality outcomes and good relationships and just, you know, fulfillment from the work that we do, we, we all have to try harder to uh, be better relators. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of approaching, you know, the way that we treat with our own internal bias. And so, you know, sometimes I approach my, my clients, you know, with the way that what I think they need or with, you know, the way that I might do something. And sometimes I, I really have to do a lot of uh, kind of, you know, self checks to make sure, okay, am, am I being the, the best person for them? And it's not about me. Yeah. And so kind of understanding that when, when we're talking about, you know, myself as a white male therapist who does treat, you know, Atlanta has a, a very large African-American population. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Can you just educate me a little bit on, you know, maybe what are some, some things that I can do to be a better practitioner to, um, be a better listener, to be able to understand my, my African-American patients better um, so that they do feel understood, so they feel um, that they're validated when they come and see me. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you highlighted um, a good point there about bias. We, we think about implicit bias as that refers yeah. to the attitudes, the stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions, and how we treat other people. And I think mm -hmm. one thing is just being aware of that, just being mindfully aware sure. of that. You know, there's many hospital systems that uh, make it a um, concerted effort to educate their um, employees on implicit bias and how we need to be mindful of that. So I think one thing is just being aware of that. The other thing mm -hmm. I, I really strongly feel is being good, be intentional listeners. So if a patient is complaining about symptoms, not to be dismissive of it, even though we might think sure. that, uh, who really cares? They're just kind of being a hypochondriac. Yeah. But even if you have to take the extra step in making that call to the physician, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth mm -hmm. it. Um, I think that, you know, for me, I'll kind of relate to a, a story that I have of a friend. Um, she wasn't pregnant, but she was on birth control pills. And um, she was complaining of legs, of pain in her legs. And she was never educated on the fact that some birth control pills can cause uh, uh, blood clots in your legs and can cause pulmonary embolisms. Oh, no. Well, a sad story. She passed away after six oh, months. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And wow. Sorry. the symptoms that she was complaining of were dismissed. She wasn't hurt. Mm. And so for me, I would have said, hey, let's call the doctor. Let's get you in. Let's do whatever testing we need to do to help you. But that by that time, it was too late. 
So not only was she not educated on the risk factors of being on this type of birth control pill, she also wasn't heard. Her, her symptoms were dismissed. They were undervalued. And so when that happens, it can be too late. In the case of Serena Williams, I'm glad they took care of it right yeah. away, yeah. but sometimes it's too late. And I think as clinicians wow. that if we do our due diligence to be intentional on listening to our patients and being more proactive and being that advocate for them, if you need to call the doctor or take that extra yeah. step, it may take an extra five minutes in your day, Yeah, but mm -hmm. do that. That can make a world of a difference in a patient's life. That's yeah. a great point. And I think one of the things that I've kind of understood from just reading, you know, certain literature is that just in general, there is a little bit of, of tension between the African-American community and the medical system. And that they, because if you're not believed about your symptoms, you maybe won't trust that system is going to actually help you. Yeah. And so when we're working with people like if you're a good clinician, you're always building trust, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of building rapport. Yeah. And so I think some of that comes back to, you know, we have to be extra diligent about building trust and building bridges. Um, and I think maybe you, you touched on a really good point, which is um, sometimes just going that extra step, yeah. going that extra mile to, to really validate somebody say, you know what, I'm hearing this symptom. Let me be the person that reaches out. Yeah. Um, and I think it's those types of kind of small things that can really make a, a really meaningful difference in, in somebody's experience within the healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what, you know, looking at it kind of from the flip side as the consumer or the patient, you know, you mentioned your three, you know, birth stories and how different they were with the providers. Did you actively seek out a different experience? Like what were you looking for in that third, you know, when you talked about going to the birth center that, you know, what kind of questions were you asking? Like if somebody's looking for, how would they interview a, a practitioner to make sure they are a good fit? That's a good yeah, question. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Um, so a friend of mine, I, you know, shared with her what I hated about my second experience in particular. And I said, I really want to feel heard. I want to feel like I'm not just a patient on their calendar, on their schedule, that they need to see, but that they're really vested in me. They're vested in my experience during my, my pregnancy. Um, I was looking for someone that has a, had a sensitivity to black women during pregnancy because mm -hmm. it is, there is an increased rate for mortality. And that was a, of a concern to me. And she re recommended me her, her midwife. She's like, you have to go to my midwife. And my midwife, she was Caucasian. She was not African-American, but I, I valued what they valued as clinicians mm -hmm. and because that because they had that sensitivity to what I needed as not only a pregnant woman, but also as a black woman, that made a huge difference for me. And yeah. that's kind of what I look for when I look for a mm -hmm. clinician. What is your, you know, your thoughts on, you know, the healthcare disparities? And that wasn't a specific question that I asked yeah. them, but you wanna you want to be with a clinician that has that awareness of these are some common things that can happen during pregnancy. And uh, I'm very thankful that I was able to find my midwife group because they were phenomenal. I'll recommend them to anyone. Um, mm -hmm. But I felt so cared for, so valued. I never felt dismissed. I mean, during my labor, I got to the, the, the midwife, the birthing center at 10 o'clock, and I had the baby at 530. And it was all oh, about wow. me. 
Yeah. That's not, yeah. yeah. That's nice. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. maybe, um, you know, we have a birthing center actually here in Atlanta. Um, there's only, I think, two in the state of Georgia, Savannah and Atlanta. But um, wow. maybe you can explain to our listeners that don't know what what is the difference between a midwife versus going to, you know, your your OB doctor. Yeah, that's exactly that what I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, going to a midwife, they the, the word midwife means with woman. And that in itself speaks a lot because when you are cared for in such a way that you have that individualized attention, it makes you want to have that experience for all your pregnancies. I wish I did that for all my pregnancies. However, with going to a midwife, they typically see people that are not at risk during their pregnancy. So if you have other high pre-existing conditions that can make your birthing experience a little bit more risky, they're not they'll refer you out to an OBGYN. An OBGYN, you know, they're, um, you know, licensed to do surgeries, have more complex cases with um, C-sections. Midwives don't do C-sections. And so that's kind of the difference. If you're at a low risk um, and you want more of a natural experience um, and that individualized attention, then I definitely recommend going to a birthing center. However, if you are at risk, for, um, sorry, we could edit that part. If you have, a, sure. if you have a, if you're, if you are at a higher risk for uh, pregnancy, then going to an OBGYN is the safest route to go. Mm. Gotcha. So, what, so you mentioned when you uh, went to a midwife that your first appointment was a full hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, what kind of things do you go over since you said your other, like when you went the route with an OBGYN, they were like maybe 15 to 20 minutes, the first one, what all do you cover in a first appointment with a midwife or at least the ones you saw? Absolutely. So they look at your complete history They look at all your um, family history. So in my family, there is a history of high blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, they talk about those things in depth, asking about my symptoms and have I been experiencing certain symptoms that might be related to that. Um, they talk about my previous pregnancies and how they went. Did I have any complications? Uh, they asked about um, exercise. Am I currently act- physically active or not? Um, am I wanting to exercise during pregnancy? Here are some resources for you to become physically active during pregnancy. Uh, they asked about what what do I dream of in terms of my um, absolute best birthing experience. We talk about that mm. too. Um, I tell them that I want a water birth. I would like essential oils diffusing, mm-hmm. and I want some spa music. And that's yeah. exactly <laughs> what I had during my that's my awesome. last. <laughs> wow. So for you, yeah, so- it was. It was amazing. It was amazing. And then my husband. It was funny because he came in about. Um, 20 minutes or so into my appointment. And when we were finished, he was like, oh my gosh, this is like five-star treatment. You know, oh. I've never felt like this before. <laughs> he was really, really just excited about it. And um, that's pretty much what they go through. It was, it was just an opportunity to really hear me as an individual, yeah. to provide the care that I want, and to make sure that as providers, they were meeting my expectations and, and my desires. 
Sounds like that's the way it should be. Again, I've never had kids, but I would like for it to be very about me and like people doing what I want if I'm about to push this baby out. Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh. That does sound really nice. Yeah. It was great. One thing to me that is always, I guess not always, but the more I've learned and become educated on um, is really the, the lack of care for women postpartum. Yeah. And something that, you know, like when I actually started thinking about these things, I'm like, wow, that's, that's real trauma that happens. <laughs> and traditionally, physical I'm and like, emotional. Yeah, yeah. And like traditionally, it was like, all right, you know, see you in six weeks, like go home. And, uh, you know, I was my younger sister um, had her first son uh, about nine months ago, and she lives in, you know, North Alabama. And um, she, you know, had her six week checkup with her her OBGYN. And, you know, he said, all right, you know, you, you can go have sex now. And um, she said, that's it. He said, well, you know, it's going to hurt, but maybe drink a glass of wine beforehand. And I was flabbergasted. Oh my gosh. I said, I are said, you kidding uh-huh. me? I, said, I was like, nah, you're going to do some telehealth appointments with my friend who's a pelvic health PT. Like, this is what we're going to do. And she had those visits. She was like, okay, I get it. Like, I can't believe that this wasn't some like an ingrained part of the system. So talk about like your experience at, you know, as being a part of, you know, something that is now really being recognized and validated as a really important part of, um, of women's health and especially postpartum care. Yeah. So that is a very common thing that I treat, um, with my patients when they come in, they say, my doctor didn't do anything. I told them that I was having pain and They just said, oh, it'll eventually go away. And for some individuals, it doesn't go away right away because there's a lot of trauma to that area. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they so, you know, to answer your question, when when I have patients that come in and say, you know, I can't have intercourse anymore, it's just Mm -hmm. unpleasurable for me. um, I do my very best to help them reduce their symptoms so that they can have a normal life it's not something normal to live with for the rest of your life. It can be addressed. And so, and Lauren, you may be able to, you know, speak on this too, but I, there's several different techniques that we as pelvic floor therapists can use to help um, patients that have pain with intercourse and to just really listen to them. I had a, a patient of mine Uh, she came in and she says, I feel really horrible because I feel like I'm depriving my husband and I feel devastated because is this going to be my new normal where I can't have sex Mm -hmm. anymore? And I said, no, we're going to work through this. We're going to get this Mm -hmm. so that you can have your normal sex life again. And so we worked for about eight sessions together after eight visits with me. She was like, you won't believe it. I said, what? She's like, we had sex and it didn't hurt. (laughs) And I said, well, we, we've oh, achieved our goal. We've achieved our awesome. goal. And so yeah. now she's a real advocate for pelvic floor therapy. She told her doctor, who's also now um, more of an advocate for referring patients um, yeah. to pelvic floor mm-hmm. therapy because there's a lot of benefit. It's not something, these symptoms are not something that you've got to live with the rest of your life. There is help out there. Yeah. Wow. And it's not, it's not just for, you know, pain, right? It's for if you're, 
you're leaking, right? Leaking, you yeah. know, urine when you laugh, sneeze, or cough, that when you're told that that's normal and it's okay for it to continue the rest of your life as a female. And the strategies to get it fixed are so easy. Like Very just easy. send somebody for PT and you can help yeah. them so quickly. The results are like in a few visits, it's like earth shattering for most people, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Is. You know, I don't have to see you for three times a week for six weeks. Just come once a week, do what I instruct you to do. And believe me, within a few weeks, you're going to start to notice a difference if you're consistent. So yeah, totally true. Yeah. It's so important yeah. for women to know. Yeah. If you're a woman and you're listening to this, there is help after childbirth. Yes. Don't worry. Your life doesn't end. <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. not end. That is the truth. Um, is there anything that, you know, we haven't talked about that you feel like is important for people to know, whether that be in, in line with, you know, racial disparity or, or within women's health? Like what, what are some things that maybe we haven't touched on that are kind of you feel like are, are really important things for us to know? Um, I just think it's important to, to one, be aware of that the problem is not a, the, co- the problem is a complex problem. It's not just, you know, here's the issue and then we can fix it like that. I think it's, it takes a communal effort to help, you know, bridge those healthcare disparities that exist within um, the African-American community. Uh, there's a quote by a woman in an article that I read that said, it feels like an obstetrician problem, but really maternal mortality is a broader societal problem. If everyone pays a little more attention to their piece of the pie, hopefully we can start to move the needle. And that really resonated with me because I feel like if we all work together to help bridge those gaps, if we are more, if we educate our patients more, if we become more Intentive, attentive when they're talking to us and we're really listening to their issues and not being dismissive and being advocates for them, I think that'll really, really make a difference. And so it's important to be aware of what's going on in our society, but to all work together to really help um, mitigate the, the racial disparities yeah. that exist in our society. Yeah. We um, So we're going to link uh, your website and your social media handles and everything in our show notes so people can find you. Um, I also saw you're doing a promotion for listeners. Yes, yes. So I offer uh, telehealth services, um, both for uh, physical therapy as well as functional medicine. Um, functional medicine, I know we didn't talk about that much. Um, it's just an area of healthcare where we really work to Uh, help address the root causes of certain symptoms that a patient might be experiencing. And so I am doing a promotion now. Um, I think I provide that provide you with that promo code. Yes. So uh, listeners can use the code made for more 360 and receive 40% off your initial appointment. Um, It can include physical therapy in person, if local physical, physical, therapy, telehealth, or functional medicine. So we'll include all that for in the show notes too, for everyone who's listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. My desire is one of the things that I really um, emphasize with all my patients is providing quality health care for the whole you. Um, we're not just the symptom. There's so many facets to us as human beings. And so my desire is that you're heard, you're valued, and that we could really help to address whatever health 
issues that you're experiencing. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great conversation. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome back, everybody. We are just coming back from our discussion with Dr. Danielle Bailey. Um, And just a a good conversation about the um, racial disparities and um, even gender disparities about navigating healthcare and um, some things that need to change and uh, just some good perspectives on how we can be kind of a better part of the solution um, within our uh, uh, populations of, of people who are maybe at a disadvantage when it comes to quality access of healthcare. So um, at any rate, I, I really enjoyed that conversation and I think it kind of highlights some some things that we ought to maybe talk about on the back end here. So Mary Kathleen has some kind of questions for us and we'll just kind of talk about these things. Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about that I feel like affects everyone, no matter your gender or race, is that um, a lot of us in the, when we go for whatever we need to be treated for, the symptom is what gets treated and not really the root cause of that symptom or what's creating that symptom. Um, so what, what benefit have you guys seen coming from maybe a more traditional physical therapy model into the model that we have at Functionize where we're setting people on a journey that's personalized? How have you seen a difference in the patients we treat now versus yeah. back when you tr- treated people at a traditional clinic? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I've worked in, in, you know, insurance-based practices where we rely primarily on people's insurance to pay for services, you know, it's really about treating a symptom or a diagnosis because insurance reimburses based off of diagnosis codes. So you're really just putting a Band-Aid on a symptom, fixing that and sending people on their way when what people are really looking for and where their frustration lies is they want a solution to a problem, right? And at Functionize, that's why we're all about like what we call our patient journey of really showing people what does that look like from start to finish so that we can find the solution and help them continue to improve beyond the quick fix. We're, you know, giving them all the tools to be successful in the long term. And I like to tell people we can't rely on our insurance to keep us healthy and to be there for us. Um, I so we say health insurance is really wealth insurance. It's almost like a, a big a policy for those catastrophic situations where you are in the hospital for a long time. Yeah. It's not going to help you when you have a surgery or have some sort of injury that you need to be treated for because they just want you in and out as quickly as possible. And as Danielle said, when she was going to her doctor's appointments during her pregnancy, they just checked in with her and sent her on her way and never really asked how she was doing. And that's really what we try to do at Functionize is get to know the person, get to know their history and what those goals are so we can be that partner along the way and that both of us are successful in achieving the outcome that's desired. Um, As practitioners or outside of being a practitioner, have you guys ever in your life experienced any sort of um, just like dismissal when you've seen someone for, you know, even just like a regular physical or something like that, if you brought up an issue, have you guys ever experienced something like that? Uh, yeah, I've got, I guess, a story from college where, um, I was, it was my second week in college and I started coming down with, uh, with a sickness and, 
Um, I was not really somebody that got sick very often. And I went to, you know, went to my trainer uh, at the athletic, you know, facility. And she said, well, I don't know, go to student health. And um, I went to student health and they were like, well, I don't know. It just seems like you got a sinus infection or something. Like, just take this medicine. I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I really don't feel well. Like, this yeah. doesn't seem like a sinus infection. I've had sinus infections before. And um, they're like, well, we don't see anything wrong. So like, you know, take take this and you'll be okay. And then two days later, you know, I'm, I'm puking my brains out. Uh, I, I can't keep anything down. I've got a, a throbbing, pounding headache. My eyes feel like they're about to pop out of my head. And I mean, really, truly, the like, not even close, the worst I've ever felt. And truly, the headache felt like my head was going to pop. And I, I called my trainer again, and I was like, something's really wrong. And at that point, she said, well, you go back to student health. And I was like, I, I can't take myself. So she came and picked me up, took me to student health, student health. Again, they, um, they were like, it's, we don't see, we don't know what's going on. So like, let's just do, you know, some labs. So they started doing some labs and I passed out. I literally fainted. Oh, gosh. And, um, they said, okay, something's really wrong here. And so they said, well, just go to the ER. So like I went to the ER and by that time I was in like fully hallucinating, um, oh my gosh. Wow. They, they sat me in the ER and I'm sitting in the chair in the ER, probably the, on the brink, like the closest to the brink of death that I've ever felt and couldn't answer questions, you know, completely disoriented. And um, they eventually just put me in this room and I swear it felt like I was in there for an hour and I kept calling the, them, calling them, calling them saying, I need something like something is really wrong. And I remember um, the, the doctor coming in and him saying, we got to get a, a spinal tap on him immediately. And Holy at God. that point, like I remember hearing that and I was <laughs> lucid during that point. And then my mom happened to call me because I told the trainer, I said, call my mom and tell her something's wrong. I've been telling yeah. my mom, I have not been feeling well, like, yeah. please call her and tell her, tell her something's wrong. And my trainer said, I'll call her as soon as I leave. And my mom just happened to call me, not because the trainer told her I was sick. My mom was just calling me. Yeah. And she said, Hey, what's going on? And I said, they're doing a spinal tap. And she said, what? Cause she knew immediately what that meant. And so wow. she hightailed it to Tuscaloosa and got there in probably record time and, you know, chewed out, <laughs> you know, chewed out the <laughs> ER, staff, chewed out the, my trainer and everybody. Cause she knew my mom knew this means meningitis. Yeah, and it uh, turned out I I had meningitis and uh, oh I, I ended up being hospitalized for you know a little over a week, but it was one of those things where it was like I was eighteen, I was kind of dumb, I just went to the student health center, they kind of dismissed me, and so like it could have actually really led to death. Yeah, <laughs> and, wow. And uh, it was one of those experiences where I I remember in in retrospect I was like okay yeah like that was that's not how healthcare needs to be done. Like no. I was completely dismissed by student health and maybe that's not their role in, in that process. But anyway, it was just one of those eye-opening experiences to say like, even though you're in the hands of the healthcare system, you may go by and, and actually not get the help that you actually need, even though you're seeking it out. Right. Yeah. They probably thought you were young and yeah, you, you know, he's just, he's just, you know, drank too much last night. You know, he's not drank feeling well, much. right? Yeah. He's got a man cold. You're right, a man cold. 
Yeah. Wow. But those are dangerous assumptions to make because who knows if Jake drink, you know, did they ask if you drank the night before? If they're just assuming that, that's super dangerous. Can't remember. Yeah. You know? Can't remember. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I remember, um, mine wasn't near death like yours, Jake, but, <laughs> but I remember I had recently moved to Atlanta and, um, you know, searching for um, OBGYN doctor or GYN. I wasn't looking to get pregnant anytime soon, but, um, you know, just going for um, a routine physical um, checkup, you know, um, and so I go and I, you know, tell them, you know, I think I found a lump in my breast. I want you to check it out. And so they, you know, they check it out. I'm like, yeah, you know, it kind of feels a little bit. Why don't we send you to a specialist so that they can take a better look? And, you know, so I'm probably, what, 23, you know, I have all these ideas going through my head that, you know, I have breast cancer, mm -hmm. like this is, you know, what's going to happen? I'm new to Atlanta, living here by myself. And I go to this breast care specialist and, you know, they get my, my information and they immediately say, okay, now go, you know, go to this room. There's robes there. Take off your shirt, put a robe on and go sit in this big waiting room. So I sit in this waiting room with all these other women wearing these robes and nobody's talking to me, except the only thing that happens is these women come out and call your name and take you back to do a mammogram. And again, if you, if you're young and you get a mammograms painful, it's scary. I'm thinking, okay, I have breast cancer. And mm. so they do the mammogram and I'm already nervous. They say, okay, now go sit back out in the waiting room. We'll bring you, we'll let you know what your next steps are. Well, they call me back for another mammogram. So now I'm going, oh my gosh, like something's seriously wrong. Meanwhile, I've never, I haven't talked to anybody, not a nurse, not a doctor. And they call me back for a third mammogram because they're like, we just not sure we have to take another picture. And then after that, they say, okay, now we're going to take you and do an ultrasound. We need a better look. So of course, through my head, I'm going, oh my gosh, like this is terrible. It's terminal. And I just remember my anxiety. And so finally, after probably being there an hour of getting three mammograms and an ultrasound, finally, the doctor comes in and talks to me about what my results are. And thank God they didn't find anything. I didn't have anything, any issues, but like, I couldn't believe that nobody took, sat me down and talked me through the process as this yeah. young 20 something wow. woman and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're not seeing anything. We're just concerned. You know, we just want to get a better image. Meanwhile, in my head, I think, oh my gosh, like I must have cancer all over my body. Like this is the end. I'm going to have to call my family. So yeah, like I, I, and I remember going back to my GYN and saying, never send me back to that place because I just, I literally felt like a number, you know, I was sitting there yeah. and they call a person at, at, you know, to get a mammogram, send them back home. And nobody spoke to me. And I, you know, and I don't know if that's how it is still done today. I would hope that that's not how it's done, that they actually have a conversation yeah. before they, they do all this testing. But so just to say they were treating a symptom. I truly was a number and a symptom in this process. Yeah. And I was not a person at all. Wow. That's where so wow. much issues have stemmed from any type of issue I've had in the medical community for any visit I go to or anything, it's always like a lack of communication. That is yeah. what does it for me. Like I remember, um, one time and I saw, so I saw my same pediatrician until I was like 17 or 18, I think really before I went to college, just because I knew, I knew them and I'd always yeah. gone there. And that's, and that's kind of easy. Normal. Yeah. Um, but one time, the first time I ever went to the doctor by myself, I must've been 16 and it was the pediatrician I'd always been to. So I wasn't really that anxious or anything. My mom, I told her, you know, you don't have to take off work. I know how to do it. 
Well, they see me. I'm in the dressing gown. Like, I had to take off my clothes. I was getting a physical or whatever. And then the doctor comes in and does all this stuff. And then they leave. They're like, okay, well, it was great seeing you. And then they leave. And so I was waiting in a nurse for a nurse to come in and tell me I was done or something like that. I sat in that room for two hours without mm-hmm. with just a dressing gown on, just waiting. The person wow. who found me was the cleaning lady. And I was so embarrassed and mortified. And I'm the type of person, and I was especially this way as a child, um, like I really just thought adults know what's going on and they're going to tell you when you're done or when it's over and stuff like that. And um, so that was crazy. I also had, I haven't had anything life-threatening either, Jake. Thank God. I'm glad you're here with us (laughs) recording this podcast today. Me too, yeah. Um, But I remember, so right before I started working at Functionize, um, I had a cough for eight months that I could not get rid of. Like it would wake me up in the middle of the night. I could not breathe. I could not breathe deeply without it triggering a cough. And I uh, went to like an urgent care. It's actually Lauren near your house. It was the closest one in network to me. Um, I went there, the doctor saw me, they were great, super nice. I didn't have an issue with them. He prescribed me some like cough medicine and I took it and it didn't have any effect on it. And then I was working for a doctor at the time and they prescribed me, um, an inhaler because they thought maybe it had something to do with that. And it was albuterol. Isn't that what the inhaler is called? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, which was horrible. Do not take an albuterol inhaler if you have anxiety it's not good for you you probably shouldn't take it <laughs> it's a stimulant right I don't have anxiety because it was like my blood was like electric sand it, that that's the only way i can describe it it felt like electricity was going through me but not in like a good productive way um <laughs> after that i went to another doctor who prescribed me tessalon pearls for coughing um uh-huh. which had oh, yeah. even yeah. less of an effect than the cough medicine but brian during this time and this was over eight months for me brian during this time had also gotten a cough and he was prescribed tessalon pearls and they weren't great for him um (laughs) finally uh i was at an appointment with mercy one day and i was coughing through the whole thing which was just not a pleasant experience and um she was like you know you just need to get a uh a general practitioner that you go and see, like you just need to have someone. And I was like, you're right. So I started going to Tara Norani, who's a nurse practitioner at Ponce Primary Care down the street. And um, she asked me some questions and we had a full visit and she was so nice and so patient. And she was like, you know, I think you have GERD or like acid reflux. And I was like, but I don't have like heartburn or anything like that. And she like asked me about what I've been eating a lot, which was admittedly a lot of Buffalo chicken quesadillas. Um, and she was like mk has some strange uh, i do oh my gosh and so i stopped eating those for like two weeks and my cough went away wow so i had heartburn well i think it's just it's funny because like these are three very very different experiences with uh but probably everybody who's navigated the healthcare system has had an experience like this. Like mm-hmm. the human body's complex, but I think yeah. one of the things that the healthcare system does is, is treats everybody as if like, we're just like an organism and you know, it's just all biology and all science. And probably the majority of the issues that we face from a healthcare system burden standpoint, you know, uh, 
lack of outcomes, whatever, could probably all be solved by some of the things we're talking about here, which is really just listening, validating, taking time, yeah. being an advocate. It's like sometimes it's the easiest things that actually make the biggest difference. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And I, I think that that's probably the, the takeaway from from this conversation, both with Dr. Bailey and from these personal anecdotes. So, Yeah, for sure. For sure. Anyway, well, this is a good conversation. Let's, you know, one of the things that we, why we wanted to bring on uh, Dr. Bailey was uh, to really talk about some of the uh, gender and, and racial disparities that are um, systemic issues uh, within the healthcare system and just within our country as a whole. And uh, we realized that this is not a conversation that needs to stop. Um, it needs to be an ongoing conversation where we are all active participants in this. So um, we hope to keep this going and uh, we thank you all for listening and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.